Hey, this is a preview of a premium bonus episode of Champagne Sharks. If you enjoy the episode, subscribe at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks for $5 a month to get access not only to the rest of this episode, but to all the premium bonus episodes of the past, the whole archive. So that's a great deal. And without further ado, here we go. Hey fam, what's going on? Champagne Sharks, this is your host T. You could find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S, no underscore. And there's also a Champagne Sharks Twitter. It's just one word, no underscore, Champagne Sharks. And we've been trying to figure out what to use it for for a while. Um... And we decided we're going to use it to share interesting links to videos, articles, things like that, that tie into the themes of the show, uh, but haven't been explicitly discussed on the show before or put in show notes, just various um, things that would be of interest to uh, listeners that we think tie into stuff that the show is about. And we'll just provide them with not too much commentary or context let you guys guess why we're um linking to them and whatnot and yeah what else um so there is the usual tell a friend thing uh if you're a fan of this show and you're a subscriber it's always helpful to tell friends friends of how much you enjoy the show. Um, tell your enemies how much you like the show. Tell tell anybody. Just let people know. That always helps. That's the next best thing you can do besides subscribing. And what else? What else? What else? Oh, there's a Champagne Sharks Reddit. ChampagneSharks.reddit.com If you go to the Champagne Sharks Reddit, you will be able to speak to a lot of like-minded Champagne Sharks fans. We don't personally run the Reddit, even though we do pop in occasionally. Uh, we try to leave that as a true uh, fan space, a space where they can say whatever, even if it's criticizing the show. Um, yeah, leave a rating or review on iTunes, um, preferably both leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps the show get discovered by more people. And also we will put a link to that in the show notes. You don't have to be an actual Apple owner. You don't have to own an iPhone. You don't have to have an existing Apple ID to do that. 
we'll provide a link that allows you to sign up for an Apple ID and leave a rating and review. So, oh, yeah, last thing is, as always, uh, check the show notes to every episode because the show notes have a lot of information, links, etc. And the show notes can end up answering a lot of questions you might have. The reason I say that is because a lot of people ask things like, hey, where was that clip from? Or what song was that in the episode? Or, you know, do you have any data to back up X, Y, and Z claim that you said? And if you go to the show notes, a lot of that information is oftentimes already in there. So an easy place to go through the show notes is champagnesharks.blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. And you can see all the show notes um, there if you're not able to see them elsewhere for whatever reason. Now, this is going to be a solo episode, just me. And I haven't done a listener questions one in a while. And one question that's popped up a lot recently. Uh, some people asked me what I meant on the episode with Wendy Muse about how non-white people are metaphoric food to white people, uh, to white racist people in a um, white supremacy society and how they're conceived of in a way that engages all senses. And it's not even just in America. I noticed it's in a lot of places. Uh, like, you know, because it came up originally in context to, uh, I think, Brazil. But, you know, I've seen um, Hispanic people called like uh, canela, like uh, that's cinnamon. It's, it pops up in a lot of contexts. Um, in that episode, I caught myself using chocolate to describe a black person. I caught myself. Then I mentioned how I wanted to break that habit because I think of it as an example of how we, as black people, tend to internalize white mindsets and view ourselves through the white hegemonic lens because white people have a strong tendency to view non-white people in sensory terms, especially food. And then I think we kind of internalize that and start describing ourselves that way um so a lot of people didn't get what i was getting at and asked me to elaborate so here goes now um one of the first times this really hit me and got me analyzing things differently and not taking it for granted was uh earlier this year or late last year i was walking out of a coffee shop in Brooklyn, in the neighborhood. On the bench outside of the coffee shop was this interracial lesbian couple. As I walked by them, they were canoodling. And yes, I said uh, canoodling, and de deal with it. And were clearly in the honeymoon period of their relationship. But the way they were uh, canoodling was what struck me. You know, the white woman was rubbing her hair, her hands through the black woman's natural uh, kinky hair and the back of her neck and was nuzzling her in a way that seemed like she was 
kind of smelling and tasting her at the same time. Like she had her face like buried in her neck. And while the black woman was being affectionate in return, it was different. She wasn't reciprocating in a way that felt like she was actually consuming her the way the white woman was with her. And what the white woman was saying while she was doing this really struck me. She was saying stuff like, I'm so digging, digging all of mm, this. You know, she said this, like with this, like, mm, like, you know, in a good way. Like she was like, so good. Like, you know, eating something really good in a, in a restaurant. And, you know, she's like, she was saying stuff like, oh, the taste, the smell, all of, and she looks her up and down and gestured like with her hands like from top to bottom she goes this and they put her hand through her hair again and resumed like the nuzzling and stuff like she was saying all this kind of stuff like you know while alternating between like um nuzzling her neck smelling her tasting her um touching all over her and the black girl was more like just kind of like looking at her back and, like, you know, doing a shy little giggle and stuff and uh, acting flattered, like, oh, stop, oh, stop. But it was it was very different. The, the PDA was very um, different. And you could tell that the black girl was kind of like a novelty to the white girl in that she just seemed really not used to the feeling of the natural hair, the or just being with a black person. Because it seemed like the way she was acting was like where she just tried her new favorite food. Like, you know, it was like she was just experiencing something new and it was driving her uh, crazy. Uh, she would look at her, then stroke her skin and her hair almost like a dog, kiss her on her skin, nuzzle her face to her neck like smelling her looking at her again and kept alternating between all those things and then saying stuff like, oh, I can't take all of this. You know, I'm just loving all of this. And it creeped me out and I couldn't figure out why, but I'll say it registered to me very much like sensory overload to watch, you know, what this white lesbian was going through. And she seemed to be going through this all-encompassing um sensory experience that was overwhelming her to the point that she seemed to be almost on some kind of high, you know, kind of like when a cat has too much catnip and, you know, they start acting like bananas. And while the black girl was very entranced too, it was more about looking at her in awe. Like the, like the black girl was kind of entranced by her uh, visually. She wasn't even saying much. She was just kind of looking at her sheepingly and lovingly, sheepishly and lovingly and giggling like a type of reverence for her visuals it seemed and at one point um the white woman said used the word chocolate and then when she said the word chocolate i was like ah i just kind of pushed the grossness a little bit more and i started realizing like uh but you know a lot of us use the word chocolate it's a very common phrase for even uh black people to use on themselves so 
why was it bugging me so much? I guess maybe in the context it was bugging me, but then it started making me reevaluate. Um, started making me reevaluate the idea of calling black people by food. Then I started noticing across the board this happens, like with a lot of um, with a lot of non-white groups. You know, they call Latina people like spicy, and I've seen people call it cinnamon caramel of different races um a lot of times they don't, they're not as prone to this to call a black person uh beautiful but they will call us hot a lot which is still like a sensory um thing it's, it's a tactile thing and it could also apply to food like you know you can have hot chocolate you can have a hot fresh out the oven dish yeah but you know there's a lot of um engagement of extra senses whereas uh, it doesn't really happen as much with with uh white people like they're more um discussed in terms of like beauty fair um they're also i rarely i can't think of really them being discussed as far as food like i, I never really seen like a black guy or some other non-white person tell like a um, white person, oh my God, you you so remind me of marshmallow fluff, uh, you know, or, or or whatever like food you want to use to describe, you know. Um, and interestingly, when white people are described with food, this is this is what I find very interesting. Um, they're kind of described in something that makes them seem unflavorful like unpalatable like um they're not good food they're um when they are food it's almost insulting like a white person is wonder bread which is considered like a bland low-end tasteless bread like the the worst bread or they get called um mayo which um mayonnaise even though i i like mayonnaise but mayonnaise gets a bad rap for being uh bland you know, it gets a a lot of people like bring up mayo when they want to um, bring up like a food that's overrated or bland or whatever. Yeah, so it's yeah, like mayo is only really considered cool when it has spices added to it. When it's uh, like a chipotle mayo, which is still something that kind of ethnicizes um the food, but just like plain mayo, not, not real. Yeah. So, or if they're described like, you know, in a tactile way, a lot of times they get called something like a snow bunny or something, you know, same thing sexually, like, you know what I mean? Um, where a snow bunny, you know, it's white, but it's also associated with something like cold, you know, something that's not very, uh, hot to the touch so it's like it's still mostly a visual reference it's and the other sensory stuff that it does bring up is not very um enticing like you don't really think of snow as something uh sexy even if you think of it as something like um visually beautiful it's not something that you really enjoy touching um yeah so i went home and i let it marinate and i was realizing that the black girl was looking at the white girl almost as if she was admiring 
a work of art, a thing of beauty, something you want to handle almost delicately and treasure. And I think that's why the white girl was not really, the black girl was not really manhandling or groping the white girl as like uh, vigorously because she's like a fine painting or, you know, something of, of uh, a collector's item, something that, you know, if you use it or abuse it too much, it's going to go down in value. It's, it's, it's so high value. You have to treat it with like reverence and respect. Whereas um, the wanker was looking at her as more like an experience, something immersive, something to be consumed, to be used, uh, to be enjoyed for all it's worth. And it made me think of kind of like how, you know, when a kid like buys a comic book and like when a kid buys a comic book, the kid buys the comic book to enjoy the comic book. They like when they take it from the store and you open it up and it has that uh, fresh new comic smell. And especially in the old days when comics used to be made of like um, cheap pulp when they were considered really disposable before anybody knew that they'd be um, a lot of them be worth a lot of money if you kept them in good condition. They used to be made in like cheap paper made of pulp. You could see like the wood grain in it. They had a certain feeling in your fingers when you were a kid. Like when you were a kid and you got a comic book, it was not just about the visuals, even though comics are a visual medium, it was the enjoyment of like bringing that comic book home, feeling it in your hands, the smell of the comic book, that smell, that cheap wood pulp, that um, sensation of touching it, of looking at it, you know, um, like I said, like, believe it or not, the smell used to be like an, an appeal, like. I remember loving that smell when it opened up. The actual enjoyment and consumption of the words and the stories, like, you know, you're actually consuming the comic book, not literally eating it, but you're consuming the ideas, the visuals, the sm smell. You're consuming it. You roll it. And when you're playing around, like, we so didn't care about these things. We would roll them up and then, like, have fights with each other. We used to bob each other in the head with the comic book. It was... um and by the time it was done, the comic book was all used up and it wasn't, it was worth even less than we bought it for because it was just that beat up and destroyed. And we just, you know, didn't care, you know, and we used it, we used it up, but we had a great experience out of it. We had great memories, you know, that could stay with us forever from these comic books. And you compare it to, you know, uh, old valuable comic book like say like the first issue of action comics that has uh the first appearance of superman that's something that an adult doing today that thing is worth so much money if you see it it's going to be in some kind of airproof bag so that oxygen doesn't get to it because it's so valuable like letting it exposed to the air would you know decay the paper and age it you know you have to try to keep it in as mint condition as you can so which means you can't smell it all you can do is look at it you can't even touch it uh, no one's gonna let you touch it and risk doing uh harm to it um you can't open it up you can't really consume it you know like taking all the ideas the pictures the words because that requires taking it in your hands, opening it, and flipping the pages and all that, 
you know, and you just can't do it. It's just like, look, don't touch, and better yet, look for look from afar, and that's the difference between um something being looked at for its visual value versus something being looked looked at for its um for its use for its engagement for its actual enjoy enjoyment for its sensory excitement you know it's a it's a very uh different thing and sensory excitement sensory engagement somehow is viewed as cheapening things for some reason but reserving something just for looking and not touching somehow preserves if not increases value and you can see it in a lot of things like for example you get a car as soon as you drive a car off the lot it declines in value like instantly it starts going down that's why a car is one of the um worst investments but i mean a car is something that engages your senses uh a lot when you use it when you use it i mean there's that new car smell or even that old car smell there's the car radio there's the audio of it there's a lot of tactile sensations you know pumping the brakes the accelerator you feel where the rubber meets the road that's like a very popular um saying and it's because it's something that resonates with people people like that feeling of the earth moving under under you under the wheels um the wind going through your hair um and blowing in your face the constantly having to look all over the place while you drive and stay constantly alert there's a lot of um sensory experiencing going into um driving a car which is why you know for some people it's a very uh a lot of most nostalgic memories or exciting memories come from cars like you know that's why car movies are so popular like fast and the furious and all this stuff things that make you remember the experience of being engaged in a car especially if you're racing like that's something that's your adrenaline goes up, you know, you're sweating, you're, there's a lot of stuff that gets triggered in the act of using a car, but the more you use it, the more it gets used up, it drops in value, it, um, it can get ugly, it, it can get dinged up and beat up, you know, whereas if you're getting cars for collector's items, like, you know, the kind of cars like Jerry Seinfeld and um, Jay Leno buy, I mean, those cars are like fine art. They're made really to look at, not really drive too much. You know, they, they drive them minimal, minimally, like the value of them comes from how little they're used. And that makes the price of them skyrocket. They go whoosh. Super collector's items very expensive and you don't want people touching them all you know willy-nilly you don't want people sitting in them too much you're you really want to limit how much people use it and you're just always obsessing over you know the visuals of it and you know you don't really get a whole bunch of sensory associations with the car the cars are not really fun like, um, you know, that 
hoopty that you used to run into the ground drag racing when you were a kid. Like, you know, you don't have those type of fun memories associated with it, really. It's not really like that. And the fact that you're not using it and just concerned with its visuals is exactly what makes it go up in price. You know, and the other thing, and this is uh, going to sound like kind of a weird jump, but stay with me. Um, that act of keeping things visual and not engaging the senses with stuff, whether it's, you know, that Action Comics number one uh, with the first appearance of Superman or whether it's the collector's item car that you um, don't drive and keep in pristine co- condition and don't really engage with. That stuff makes the thing more intellectual. It, and what I mean by that, um, what I mean by it being more intellectual, like, for example, uh, they have a whole team and degree of experts involved in grading and evaluating these collector's items things, these things that are just primarily uh, visual. They have, for example, you know, people who know how to tell the real from the fake. They know which comics are worth money and which ones don't. They have books that they read to, um, you know, double check things. You'll have a team of experts get together and do a vote on, you know, what what is it with the condition of this car? What is it with the condition of this um, comic? Um, what do you think the grading of it is? Uh, what should we look for, you know, to really make it worth top value, to really make it um, evaluated correctly? You know, things, things like that. Visuals, making something uh, visual only also coincides with intellectualizing it. It's, uh, you, and you'll keep, you'll keep seeing it with a whole bunch of different things. Like, uh, if you compare comics to um, fine art, um, comics as a whole, even the expensive ones, if you take the whole field of it, it's kind of considered a lowbrow um, and more all-encompassing experience than, say, a piece of fine art in a museum hanging up. And if you notice the level of um, theory and expertise and intellectualism surrounding that uh, painting in the museum or whatever is being showcased in the museum tends to be a lot more elevated, uh, complex, complicated, um, theoretical than, you know, the discussion of the comic. and. Same, same with the car collecting, like, you know, these car experts will tell you about every single year of car that came out and what the difference is between a 54 and a 56 and what slight changes that Chevy made and, you know, this year and why and how you can tell, you know, etc. Another example is like those rare limited pay edition pair of Jordan sneakers purchased by rich, hardcore sneakerheads, like, that sneakerhead, most of them, a lot of them, you know, they'll buy them, they'll even keep them in the original packaging, 
you know, because they're just beautiful. Like the value comes from not being used or they'll wear it occasionally just to let other people see them. You know, like they'll use, it's not about enjoying wearing them. It's about, it's still visual. I want other people to see these limited editions, but it's almost considered wrong to use and enjoy them too much because it's a devaluing and downright disrespectful act. Using and enjoying them and breaking them in reduces their monetary value and their aesthetic value. The less used, the less enjoyed, the more beautiful it is, the better. And that's what beauty is. Beauty is beautiful and retains beauty by how little it's used and engaged and um, used up. You know, that's why, like, you know, a girl can go from a beautiful, good girl in the mind of a town to a hot, fast little slut just by having too much sex. She's been used too much. She's lost her beauty and now has become something um, that you describe in a sensory or sensual way. Um, using and enjoying beautiful things almost um, ruins them, makes them shameful, and actually removes their uh, beauty. Like, so compare that high school kid who loves playing basketball every minute he can and plays long and hard. I mean, his sneakers are there to be used, experienced. That sneaker is taken out of its package. It's, it's touched. It's used. It's worn out. It's jumped up and down. And it's sweated and it's part of a full experience becomes smelly eventually looks ugly loses all value eventually except for nostalgic value the, it, it triggers uh, something emotionally in the kid maybe when he sees his old high school sneakers but you know and even though it loses all that value the relationship is way more fun and memorable um its beauty is secondary and fleeting and there's no intent to protect and preserve it and that's another thing with beauty like beauty is meant to be protected and preserved and if anything the value of it increased whereas sensory stuff things being used is not only not supposed to be protected and preserved it's supposed to be the opposite it's supposed to be used up it's supposed to end up empty beaten up um, worn down like that's how you know you've used it up the most the best you've had the most fun with it you've gotten the most out of it you know if it doesn't look that way you haven't been enjoying it enough now this corresponds to people uh, white, white people in the system of white supremacy and the white imagination under the system of white supremacy are supposed to be beautiful protected preserved Non-white people are supposed to be sensual, disposable, used, and used up. This is why they're mostly characterized visually, like fair or beautiful or cute or handsome, while we're more commonly called things associated with taste or tactile sensation, and sometimes in other senses, you know, but things like chocolate, cinnamon, an Oreo, a banana, spicy, hot, thick, fine. Honey, smoking, firm, etc. 
This is because in the traditional white imagination, we're meant to be used and consumed. We are food. It makes us more fun. It makes us seem more appropriate to be consumed, but it also makes us considered to be less valuable, cheaper, more disposable, more appropriate to be used up and not something that is worth preserving. Now, it's important to understand what sensually, sensual literally means. Sensual does not just describe making you want to have sex or, you know, attractive. It has a very specific definition. It, it means something that engages and gratifies the senses. That's why it's called sensual. Now, because the more senses involved in sex, uh, the hotter, the better the sex tends to be, sensual kind of becomes um, synonymous with sex in our imagination. Because uh, sensual sex is considered the best sex, you know, sex that engages more of your. Uh, physical senses, senses at the root of the word sensual. So it's not just about being attractive or sexy. It's about the level to which it engages the physical senses. And the more senses it engages, the better. And the more intensely it engages those senses, the better. So it's not just a general lazy meaning of sexy or attractive for the purposes of this analysis. Now, It's why you rarely see white people described in multisensory terms. Usually, it's mostly visual. Like I said, you know, white bread is food, but it's meant to convey an absence of flavor and unsexiness. And it's brought up more for its visuals. Snow Bunny is more about the visuals to me. The only white people I can think of with sensory nicknames offhand were uh, there was Vanilla Ice, the rapper. And there was Jason Williams, the white NBA player uh, they called White Chocolate, like back in the 90s. But in both cases, their nicknames were meant to convey honorary blackness and show that they had soul and to show how white they weren't. So I don't know if I'd even call, count that. Even uh, Eminem, I mean, what's, what's he called? He's called Eminem. What's he named after? He's named after... That's, you can kind of argue that's a food nickname, but he does it to show that he is uh, kind of has soul. He's like an honorary black guy in a way because white is Eminem. Eminem is um, it's a chocolate. Yeah, so, I mean, that still falls in that category. Now, us black people, we don't just engage all the five senses, but I throw in a sixth sense or extra sensual aspect, if you will, which can be called like spirituality, magic or whatever. Um, there's that, there's that as well. And this is going to get uh, heavy and a little weird. So I want you to follow me. Um, my personal theory is that a major reason black people are deemed to be so close to nature is because we're deemed uh, less intellectual and civilized. Therefore, being more in tune with our natural instincts and not prone to overthinking things, you know, like savages or wild animals. But I also think the sensory thing goes both ways. Like we don't just excite uh, people along more sensory lines. Like 
more senses, but you know, we don't we don't just communicate outward um a more sensory experience. We also have more sensory inputs ourselves. Like we uh have um an evolved sense of we have evolved senses. So like we um can see things better, smell things better. Um on a tactile level, we are more uh, durable. We're more evolved um, on a tactile level. You see it in all these studies where they show that uh, white people believe that black people are physically more resilient, that we somehow um, have a higher pain threshold, that we're harder to abuse, that we can take more, um, that we can take more physical punishment. They've had a whole bunch of uh, stories about that. So, like, I think another reason we're deemed as being close to nature is because our increased senses allow us to perceive and absorb uh, more of it. And also, because the more sensory engagement any um, endeavor has, the lower its intellectual quality, that also helps feed the idea that we're less intellectual. And again, that increases the likelihood that you're enjoying the nature on a more simplistic, savage, uh, and therefore authentic level. So to make sure we're on the same page, white people equal primarily intellectual and logical with the most pronounced sense being vision, because vision is the sense most associated with intellect and refinement. Black people equal primitive, anti-intellectual, with a higher reliance on all senses, which makes us closer to nature and animals. These constructs affect how white people and black people are deemed to achieve uh, spirituality in the white imagination, even. Like, a black person achieves spirituality through an abandonment of intellect and civilized behavior by regressing to savagery. Black spirituality, whether it's the Black Christian church, or whether it's Haitian voodoo, is viewed as bodily, engaging all the senses, sweaty, with screaming, singing, laying of hands, dancing, seizures, holding hands, touching, rolling in the tongue, I mean, rolling around the floor, getting hot, uh, speaking in tongues. Like black spirituality is deemed as sensual. The that the idea is that you indulge in and lean into your senses and into immersing your, yourself sensory into an experience and tapping into your senses. And by tapping into those senses, you push through into a spiritual experience, you know, whether it's um, catching the spirit, speaking in tongues, having a type of uh, seizure, experiencing a type of uh, pre-verbal euphoria. This is why voodoo looks the way it does to white eyes, like so corrupting and dangerous, yet enticing, you know, just like sex. Again, I'm not saying that this is true or accurate. I'm saying any of this is real. I'm saying it's what a lot of uh, white people in the racist society deem to be real. I mean, there's a lot of white people that other white people find 
hot or sensual. And there are a lot of um, black people that uh, white people find beautiful. I'm just saying that they don't feel like they're supposed to feel this way. And a lot of times that leads to them feeling kind of uncomfortable that something's wrong. All right, fam, that's the end of the preview. If you want to hear the rest, go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and subscribe. Be good.